previously on Finding Tammy Joe. Do you recall any murders right up around uh, Rochester, Buffalo, in that area? Well, I got one that uh, a girl I shot up in there. That was in a cornfield up there. Otis Toole told me almost the exact same story that Henry Lee Lucas told me. A lot of that information they really should not have known, but we never closed the investigation because we couldn't confirm what they said. We had we ended up running down over 10,000 leads on this. We only ever needed somebody to report her missing. That's all we ever needed. I'm Gary Craig with The Democrat and Chronicle. And I'm Veronica Volk with WXXI News. And this is Finding Tammy Joe, the podcast. A quick warning before we get into this one. This episode talks about people after they die, what happens biologically to their bodies, and what happens systemically if they're found without identification. Both are disturbing in their own way, so this might not be suitable for young or sensitive listeners. So, 30 years of forensic testing, interviews with numerous serial killers, and community outreach campaigns turned up thousands of leads for the Livingston County Sheriff's Office in the Kelly Doe case. But by 2009, not one had brought them any closer to a resolution. But that year, on the other side of the country, a random series of events began to occur that would change that. I was working for Disney back up until uh, 2009, and I got laid off from the, my job there. Carl Koppelman is 53 years old. He lives in El Segundo, California. At the same time, my mother was was uh, having difficulty. She's getting high in age, and she's now 93 years old. But at the time, she needed a knee replacement, and she was very uh, immobile. And so I had just been laid off, and she needed me around the house to help her with uh, various things around the house. And so that sort of became a full-time task is taking care of her. I never returned back to work. Koppelman has been his mother's permanent caretaker for the last several years. When I started getting around the house here, I started looking for things to keep myself occupied. And I, I'd run across this story in 2009 of J.C. Dugard. A bit of an aside here, J.C. Dugard was a young girl, 11, who went missing from the Lake Tahoe area in 1991. For 18 years, no one had any idea what happened to her, until one day, in 2009, out of nowhere, she just shows up at a police station with her abductors. I was following that story. I was very intrigued by that story, and I started following that and came across WebSleuth. WebSleuth is a website, but it also refers to the mass of people across the country who dedicate their time to trying to solve missing person cases and identify unknown victims. Deborah Halber wrote a book about them. It's called The Skeleton Crew. When they came upon these kind of uh, puzzles, if you will, of who are these unidentified bodies, and they realized that some people had started creating resources to try to make matches in databases, they really took it on as, as kind of a personal challenge. Halber says that at first glance, web sleuths don't seem to have much in common. They vary in terms of age and gender and background. But the more people I met with, 
the more I came to feel that uh, a common denominator was that these people were maybe kind of underemployed. Their, their day jobs weren't terribly intellectually stimulating. Or maybe like Koppelman, they just didn't have a day job. With all the spare time I have at home, having, having to be around home to, to care for my mother, this is, this is what keeps me, uh, keeps me going and keeps me feeling like I'm doing something useful. It may be surprising, but web sleuths are sometimes successful at identifying the people whose cases they take on, which makes you wonder, what do they have going for them that the police don't? The more I looked into it, the more I realized that part of the problem was that uh, different jurisdictions don't necessarily communicate with each other very well or or really at all. And uh, there's a a really large number of separate law enforcement-related jurisdictions across the U.S. I read one figure that said there are 17,000 individual kind of law enforcement bodies, you know, ranging from urban police departments to sheriff's offices to small-time police departments and, you know, other kinds of entities like that. And so within these, there's a real lack of communication. There was no central database to put information about unidentified bodies or really missing people. The National Missing and Unidentified Person System, or NamUs, is a database intended to address this issue. It's supposed to help law enforcement and the public communicate about these cases. It didn't go online until 2009. Since then, it's been credited with helping solve 665 missing persons cases and 285 unidentified persons cases. But it's estimated that there are 40,000 cases of unidentified people in the U.S. alone, found dead as a result of suicide, accidental death, or homicide. And I have to say that initially, I, you know, I probably succumbed to the prejudice that if somebody were found dead without any ID and they, you know, they were basically unclaimed for even decades or years or decades, that there, you know, maybe it was somebody who wanted to not be found or maybe it was somebody living a very marginal lifestyle. And in some cases that is true, but that's not at all true for most of these cases, they're just people like you and me, and through accidents, or, or, you know, some of them are suicides and some are victims, and they just don't have any identifying material with them, and they ended up literally stowed in the back rooms of morgues across the U.S. Regular people are trying to connect the dots with these cases. All they need are free time and, most importantly, an internet connection. I was very intrigued by that, that that there were citizen, just everyday regular citizens out there trying to solve these missing persons cases. So I started getting involved with that. But Koppelman wasn't just scrolling through databases looking for matches. Instead, he took a far more active role as he tried to identify these nameless people. There were a lot of uh, forensic drawings that were associated with unidentified decedent cases. And I realized that a lot of these had the Forensic drawings weren't very accurate. He noticed that when it came to cases that had been solved, the forensic drawings looked completely different from photos of the actual people they were supposed to depict. I have artistic skills, so I started trying to do facial reconstructions of my own and and getting positive feedback from them. Which brings us back to Callie Doe, 
John York, the retired Livingston County Sheriff who was the lead investigator on her case, says Kelly's picture was a point of controversy internally. The management decision at the time to was, was to release a photograph that was done by an artist. I never liked it from day one because I felt the artist concept didn't match the facial features of our victim. It's cruel to say, but I'm just going to tell you just like it is. When you have a victim who's bled out, their body changes, their facial features change. So when you pump fluids back in the body, you can get almost exactly lifelike uh, what she looks like. That's what we photographed. We tried to get that out, and then we filled in the facial features where the injury occurred, and uh, then we began to use that photograph. It was York's photo, not the original artist rendering, that caught Koppelman's attention. Back around, I guess it was around 2010, they had a post-mortem photo of Callie Doe available, and I decided, okay, let me see if I can try to do a uh, facial reconstruction of, of this one, and so I put that out there. Enhance the skin tone, lower her eyebrows, open her eyes, straighten her hair, put a natural expression on her face. It requires a lot of practice to be able to do that right. My first initial attempts were kind of crude and not very well done, but as I kept doing these, I developed my capability with the software and my you know, techniques that, of, of bringing life into these, these lifeless faces. He revised his picture 10 times over six years. Meanwhile, Koppelman also kept a spreadsheet with thousands of names of missing persons that he compared with reports of unidentified people. Web Sluice kept suggesting the same identities for Callie, but after years of drawing her face, the outline of her jaw, the slight protruding of her two front teeth, the shape of her eyes, Koppelman knew he hadn't seen a face like that in any missing persons report. Until September 2014. Part of my routine is to, you know, purge the resolved cases off the list and add new ones and keep my eye on the new listings you know, to see if I can recognize any of those as cases that I've been working on. That day, Koppelman was adding a few names to his spreadsheet. One of them caught his attention. It was an old case from the 1970s. When I saw the picture, it immediately clicked with me. I immediately recognized her and said, hey, that's Callie Doe. Her name was Tammy Jo Alexander. She was from Brooksville, Florida. The shape of her face, the eyebrows were identical. Her teeth, she had her open mouth smile there with her teeth showing. And I could see she, she had very slightly protruding front teeth that matched perfectly to Callie Doe. Things started moving very quickly after that. Well, I immediately went to Web Sleuths because that's where I moderate the unidentified forum and went to get the, the Cali Doe thread on Web Sleuths and put up a post that said, bingo, I think this is Cali. Then I set up an email uh, and I sent it to the Livingston County Sheriff. You know, I put a side-by-side -side photo of the post-mortem photo with, with Tammy Joe's picture and said, I think this is, um, I think this is the same person. Koppelman contacted a woman who ran a Facebook page dedicated to Callie Doe. She knew a Livingston County investigator on the case. 
From there, Koppelman says, he faded into the background. He let other people put the pieces together. Once the identification has taken place, I didn't, don't want to stick my nose too much into the investigation. I'm, I understand it's a you know, confidential investigation. The FBI is involved, and they, they want to do a proper investigation, and I want to respect that. So you know, my role with regard to finding out who she was sort of ends there. I, I am interested in finding out, you know, anything that they're willing to release to the public on, on the investigation of the murder itself. But from this point, now that she's identified, now I'm, you know, just moving on to the, you know, hundreds of other cases, the thousands of other cases that still remained unsolved. Koppelman still dedicates most of his time to solving cases, particularly those involving young people. You wonder, you know, when you have a a girl that young or a, a boy that young, there are several cases of young boys as well, it raises a little more interest than other cases just because it's inconceivable that, you know, somewhere there's a family, somewhere there's parents who are wondering where this kid is, and you you want to do it the best that you can to try to bring attention to these cases. We are so indebted to them, I can't even tell you. Carl Koppelman knew just like I did when he saw her face, who that was. Retired Sheriff John York again. The BBC came over here a few years ago and did a special on um, why I thought this would get solved, and I felt the Internet would solve it. And you know what? It did. And uh, I told them, because technology has advanced so far in our society, and so many people are on social media today, Someday somebody will do that. I can't tell you how many websites today have our Jane Doe case on their own website for a variety of reasons, whether it's in Canada or Europe or around the country. There's so many different people who have different websites of different missing persons. People really do care. You and I most of the time just get to deal with the bad side of life because that's our life. But that's only the 5%. The other 95% really do care. It's 2014. The girl in the cornfield has a name. It's Tammy Jo Alexander. But there's a lot left to do to confirm the identification. And with this one answer came a rush of new questions. Among them, why had it taken so long for her to be reported missing? And who had finally begun looking for her? That's next time on the podcast. I'm Veronica Volk, WXXI News. And I'm Gary Craig, Democrat and Chronicle. This is the fourth episode in our podcast series called Finding Tammy Joe. To hear more, go to findingtammyjoe.com or subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. This podcast is produced by WXXI News and the Democrat and Chronicle. Thanks for listening.